Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, so we're back again with another segment discussing finances for medical students with Dr. Ned Palmer, who is a real-life doctor. Um, an actual doctor and an actual chief strategy officer for Panacea Financial, uh, who is generously supporting our series on health system science. Uh, today's question is uh, financial literacy. What's the point? Why does, what do students gain from financial literacy? Thank you very much, Patrick. It's great to be back here at Inside the Boards. Um, always such a pleasure to be sponsoring the, uh, your, your health, system science, uh, health system science material and curriculum. I know there's like too many asses. <laughs> tell tell us about financial literacy. Make make us financially literate. How about that? Absolutely. So in two minutes. In two minutes, I think we can we can cover all of financial literacy. So financial literacy matters at every stage, and the earlier that we as providers, as med students, residents, fellows, uh, and, and attendings, the earlier you can start to learn about some of the core topics in financial literacy, the better off you'll be through the course of your life as you go on making financial decisions. As a med student, 80% of med students made the incredibly expensive decision to take out $200,000 on average of student loans to fund their education. Um, that is a massive amount of debt. It is manageable by understanding some basic tenants, gathering some, some of the core concept of financial literacy, understanding things like interest rate, term rate, finance, refinance. But it is a huge ask that too often we see physicians just put into a corner and ignore that $200,000 until it's become 300, 320, 340. It, it grows and without attention and without understanding what the best methods are, um, you leave yourself liable to be living paycheck to paycheck, even as an even as an attendant. Absolutely. I mean, like sometimes I'll be, I'll be like go into like a clinic or the labor and delivery floor, 
Now that, you know, like th they're ordering something, for instance, like uh, DoorDash. And uh, I have this like compelling sense that, oh, maybe I should like pay for something. Uh, but then, you know, and it, it, I often do. And you, I, I think everyone should be generous if you're able to be. That's, you know, the point of having money is to do good with it. But if you are making $250,000, that's an awesome income. If you have $400,000 in student loan debt at the same time, uh, your like net revenue each month, if you think about yourself as a business, is, is not really that great. I mean, you, you'll do fine. You got great cash flow, but uh, you know, you can't work for three months and you forgot to get disability insurance. You know, there's tons of things that make our financial state as physicians and medical students, uh, number one, not understood by the general public nowadays, I would say. Um, and, and two, there, there's still hardship. There's still difficulties. I mean, probably everyone listening to this right now understands there are financial difficulties with becoming a doctor. Absolutely. And so if, if we could throw some numbers behind that, uh, Patrick, just some of the ones that you threw out. So if you're making, if you've got a, a salary of $250,000 a year, your take home every month is in the neighborhood of about 20,000. That's a great amount of money. You know, that is, that's great. That's really comfortable. That's really healthy. Okay. We're going to strip off conservatively 50% to taxes uh, to taxes, to your paying for health insurance for you, for your family. And so we're down to about $10,000 that you've got of in the pocket money. Still great. $10,000 at any point in my life would be terrific. But I, Dr. Ned Palmer, I owe $412,000 in student loan debt at currently 7% interest rate. On a 10 year plan, I owe $4,700 every single month. Oh man, that sucks. Now you're only down to like $5,000 take home. Now I'm down to $5,000 take home, which is great. That's a lot better than the $3,500 I had in residency. Totally. But it's only a little bit better than what I had in residency. Well, then you got rent or mortgage. Rent or a mortgage, car, car insurance. And you're not in Ohio like me, right? <laughs> Sadly, I'm in Boston. So I think my, uh, I, I, I'm not getting the cost per square footage boost that you are. Man, this is depressing, dude. Yeah. And so I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring the sads to the HSS series, but the. <laughs> No, it's okay. It's your sadness more than mine. So it's, it's easier for me to, to have that detachment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you start a panacea, right? Like this is the whole impetus. <laughs> to address this, absolutely. Because it's too easy with, it's, it's too easy for a physician to work hard, do good work, and still end up living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to make ends meet. And yet they're making so much money, they don't qualify for any kind of assistance. They certainly don't get a lot of sympathy. Um, it's, it's, it's too easy. And so financial literacy in this case affords you an understanding of how you should be restructuring your finances and helps you look for opportunities to make your financial health better. And that's where the literacy piece is really important. You don't need to go out and get an advanced degree in personal finance to do this. There are just some core concepts that you can be mindful of as consumers, which will really add to your financial health. Yeah. And there's a lot there to list. So eventually we plan to 
uh, do a little series on financial literacy. Uh, at least I either thought that in my head or we talked about it briefly, but uh, maybe we'll leave this in here and not cut it so we're committed. I'm about it. The more education, the better. Hey. I'm all, we educate everybody. <laughs> Perfect. A smarter group of med students is better for the world. Amen to that. But All right. Well, uh, here's the plug. Discover the difference with a bank that's built specifically for you and your life. Just go to panaceafinancial.com slash ITB to get started. Panacea Financial is banking built for doctors by doctors. Panacea Financial, a division of Sona Bank, member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm Patrick Beeman, the usual host and founder of this platform, uh, or at least one of them. I'm here today with Mustafa Shakir, who's a, are you a third year medical student? Second year, almost finished a second year. <laughs> okay. Uh, 2.5. And uh, Dr. Tanya Fancher, who is the Associate Dean for Workforce Innovation and Community Engagements, and the Interim Associate Dean for Student Residence uh, and uh, Student and Resident Diversity at UC Davis, if that's still an interim position. That is, yeah, true for 20 more days. 20 more days, okay. Just about. I'll let you guys say a little bit more about yourself, and we'll start with uh, uh, Mustafa, actually, because He's the most important person here as a medical student talking to other medical students. We wouldn't have a future without you guys. So Mustafa, what's, what are you into? What are your, uh, uh, what's your background? Uh, I appreciate it, Dr. Thank you so much. Um, my name is uh, Mustafa Shakir, as you mentioned. I uh, got into UC Davis about a year ago. I'm a second year medical student now. Um, we just finished our uh, um, half of our uh, fourth block. So um, we're approaching step pretty pretty soon. Um, my background, I'm originally um, from the Middle East, from Iraq specifically. I came here when I was 16 and I attended uh, community college and then Santa Barbara for undergrad, UC Santa Barbara. And then I took about a year and a half of a gap year. Um, I did some work in the laboratory and a clinical lab and I did some research work. And then I finally applied into UC Davis and I got... Um, I got into the uh, program, which was an honor, and honestly, one of the best things that has ever happened to me, hands down, for sure. That's awesome. Uh, Dr. Fancher, you you are a former uh, U.S. Air Force physician, correct? Correct. Uh, mm -hmm. I was, too, so thank you for your service, but also, like you double majored in classics and biology, right? I did. I did. You have done your research. Yes, I did. Well, I um, I took a couple. Uh, well, I, I studied Latin and Greek as much as I could in my philosophy undergrad. That's what I did, and then a master's program. Um, and the whole time, I <laughs> even now a little bit. I wish uh, I had actually majored in classics. So mm -hmm. you still uh, still read any Latin? <laughs> No, not like I used to. And I have to say one of the um, most memorable classes was taking Greek in college. Um, and to me, it's just, it's about history, right? And stories and really understanding mm -hmm. the origin of things. I just think it's fascinating. I think that we get stuck in ourselves or in contemporary and realize that things are much deeper. Our history is much deeper than that. So. Yeah, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that history is the democracy of the dead. So I've always appreciated that phrase. Nice. All right, today we're here to talk about kind of the social determinants of health. And thank you to 
the AMA and Elsevier for giving us some support for this series on health system science, the third pillar of medical education. Um, you guys came aboard, gave your time uh, to discussing these social determinants, which are identified as five uh, in the HSS uh, textbook that is published by Elsevier that we'll put the link to in the show notes. So we're talking about things like one, economic stability, educational uh, level of the patient's health, um, uh, community, uh, neighborhood, kind of the things that provide the framework uh, and context in which we see patients. And honestly, they're what? 90% more important uh, uh, in determining how one's biological health is than pretty much anything we uh, can do in the context of a, a visit inside an exam room. I think that's the most humbling part, yeah. right? To think about like, we're so used to seeing patients one-on-one -on -one in the hospital or in the clinic and realizing that the therapies that we can offer in that context are pretty limited um, and that we have to look outside if we're really concerned about care for our patients and the public. Yeah, so Mustafa, why are you interested in uh, social determinants of healthcare? Because we're gonna talk about a, a project that you guys collaborated on at UC Davis. Yeah, um, I personally come from background um, in which I grew up in a relatively third world country that one was going through war and everything. And um, I, think I noticed the impact of that on me personally, on some of the people that I know, my family, my friends. And I sort of took that and I imagined what it would be like if all of these other things had happened and how that would have affected me and my family and my friends, similarly to how growing up in, in those conditions affected me currently. Um, and that really allowed me to sort of get a perspective of what it's like when I see a patient who tells me that I don't have enough resources to get food. I don't have enough resources to get the most basic necessities because I, I, I feel like I can relate to that because I, uh, I had seen people like that and there was a period of time that I felt something similar to that. Um, so I think that sort of my background um, helped me uh, really empathize with those patients and um, really recognize the importance of those social determinants of health. Totally. I, uh, I recently opened up a level one opioid treatment program uh, where we um, help people with uh, opioids specifically, substance use disorders, um, providing uh, medication-assisted treatment with methadone and buprenorphine. And this is just, it's changed my entire outlook on what it means to be a doctor and uh, in many respects, just in, in general, my own like personal values. And yesterday, uh, it, kind of timely. Uh, I saw this patient who had enrolled in our, our program, which are, are very, um, very heavily regulated from both a federal and a state level, uh, given the potential for diversion of medications uh, like methadone or buprenorphine. Um, so she had en enrolled, dropped out because of transportation issues. Uh, patients in these programs have to go to dose every day to get the medication at a uh, window and be observed. Um, and eventually they get some more privileges. But she came back after a, a month and a half and, and she just looked, just looked 
awful. Like, like she'd been through everything and uh, like she had, she, you know, this is Cleveland, Ohio in December. And she was, I was like, well, what's going on? And she, I slept, I'm, I'm tired. I slept uh, in an alley last night and I, I was just like thinking, oh man, this is my last patient. I'm going to go home to my, my house that has three HVAC, you know, furnaces. Um, I, I've got, you know, two Oculus quests. Uh, I live in this like luxury that, that is really worlds different than, than what, you know, she experiences day to day. And because of her own, um, you know, uh, substance use disorder, like her, she, she also has trouble getting the help just because she can't get to the clinic or she could walk four miles a day um, to, to, to dose and then four miles back to the place or area she usually stays at. But right now she doesn't have anywhere to stay. And it's just, uh, I, I can't stop thinking about it since yesterday, even though I know this stuff happens all the time. It, it just, it really, it really struck me yesterday. Um, I don't know. I'm just telling her story because uh, she's a pretty cool person, deserves to have her story told, and I just wish we could do more to help people like her, uh, which you guys try, I assume, to to do in these student-run clinics that were the site of your project here. Uh, yeah, so um, kind of like what you mentioned, uh, the student-run clinics that we have, we have about 12 of them, and we actually are having the 13th open up soon. Um, and wow. yeah, and and they're really exciting they're very exciting projects because they help the medical students get clinical experience and they have the help um, the populations of the communities around us um, because our student-run clinics uh, serve um, mostly uninsured, undocumented, financially challenged people who would not be able to go get care anywhere else. Um, and each of our student-run clinics is sort of catered to a specific population and they serve a specific population, um, whether that is like um, population from a cultural standpoint, from a habit standpoint. So we have a, a clinic that's catered for the Hispanic population, a, credit, a clinic that is catered for um, substance abuse population, a clinic that's catered for the homeless population. And um, of course there's crosstalk and people can go to front clinics, but that sort of um, stratification allows for us to get people to work in those clinics that are have very specific interests and have very specific backgrounds that helps with that kind of things. Um, so for example, we have uh, undergraduate students do um, translating in our clinics because a lot of our patients don't speak English. And so if you're a Hispanic undergraduate student who is interested, who knows Spanish very well, you can join the Hispanic culture centered clinic. That way you are speaking the native language and that helps the patients feel, feels more familiar at the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Fancher, you, um, are, are you in charge of setting these up or do you help direct which sites open or, um, if they have a particular character, like he describes like more Spanish speaking population, is that your role? No, <laughs> it's not my role actually. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm just interested what a, an associate dean for workforce innovation, I want to know what that means, and the community engagement portion. Yeah, so um, actually that um, Mustafa can tell you more, but the student-run clinics are really run, they're run by faculty in the community, um, Patrick, and it's the medical students that are providing the incredible infrastructure, but it's they're truly partnerships with the community. Um, and I think 
to build on what Mustafa said, you know, we also think about the structural determinants of health in addition to the social determinants and those have to do with policy and immigration and even for your patient, right? What is the stigma and policies associated with trying to get treatment, right? Yeah. The kind of treatment that she needs. And, um, and those aren't necessarily due to her built environment, right? They're really due yeah. to our national policies. Um, so, and what I do is at, we're, we're lucky at Davis, as Mustafa talked about, we have many different student run clinics, but we also have programs within the medical school that help the students to um, pursue careers that they're committed to. And, and so in addition to the work Mustafa do, does, what I do is if students are interested in rural health, for example, um, I create opportunities for them to really immerse in rural health. Um, we have an urban health program that we call Teach, um, Teach MS. We have a program for the San Joaquin Valley. We have a three-year primary care program. And now we're starting a project that's, again, sort of place-based and um, to recruit students from rural Northern California and Southern Oregon as a partnership with OHSU to populate that area with more physicians. So like Mustafa said, there's something really important about the background that you bring to this career in medicine. I think it offers an, an easier connection to patients who share that background. You know, we can teach you the knowledge that you need in medical school, right? But you bring an incredible experience and asset. So what we're doing is recruiting students that way to Davis. So that's, a, I'm lucky. That's the work I get to do. Um, are you, are you um, internal medicine or? Yeah, I'm a general internist. Okay, cool. Uh, Mustafa, so how, tell me about your projects. Why did you guys um, start this project? And I'm just going to not say anything more about it and let you explain uh, what you guys did. Thank you. Um, so this project started um, right around March when um, all the social distancing and quarantine, strict quarantine guidelines went into place. And like I had mentioned, our clinics provide uh, care to people who don't have care anywhere else. Um, and we have been providing uh, the, this this type of care for decades. Some of our clinics have been open since 1980. Um, and so a, a lot of our communities depend on us and only on us to get care for a lot of chronic conditions that they have. Um, and when March happened and everyone had shut down, that included our student clinics. Um, we basically got a mandate from the AMA, from the school, from the city of Sacramento, that we cannot, as preclinical students, see patients at, on volunteer basis in a student clinic. That was shocking at first because that, you know, um, to us, those clinics are life-saving to these populations. To other people, they're just clinics. Um, to the patients, that's, that is the only source of care that they can get. Um, so we quickly uh, sort of scrambled and we had a bunch of meetings, different clinics had a bunch of meetings, and we decided to move into a telemedicine model like most other practices around the country. Um, and basically, we established, um, you know, online systems and new protocols and things like that and how to transition our care to a telemedicine model. Um, but then we noticed after a few weeks, there was a few problems with that, especially specifically when it comes to our clinics. One, like we had discussed, a lot of our patients don't have 
access to the right technology to do an effective telemedicine visit. That is, they either don't have access to video calling to, to actually, you know, make the visit viable. And some of them don't even have phones to actually make a telemedicine visit. Some of our patient population for like, like one of our clinics, Willow, serves the homeless population. They don't have phones. So that, that's practically impossible to do a telemedicine visit. So then with Willow being closed, that population lost all access to care. Um, that was the number one problem that we noticed. And then the second problem that we noticed was because we are Sonoran clinics and we lack a lot of the resources that any other health systems have, sort of, such as like imaging access, um, other diagnostic test access, um, we rely more on the physical exam and the physical interaction with the patient to care for the patient than other providers potentially. Um, the way I like to explain to this to, pe- to people is, you know, if you go to a, a, a regular provider right now and the provider suspects something, they, instead of them making the decision right then and there, they end up sending you for an imaging because they have access to that. They have access to send you for an imaging for you to get images. For us, we really have to sort of look at our physical exam findings, really talk to the patient, get that history, and determine, can we proceed without imaging? And if we can, how does that look? And if we can't, how does that look? How can we help the patient get the care they need when we don't have a lot of resources at our hands? For that first portion, how did you overcome the difficulties in access for people who you know, didn't have the technological means? Right. So that, that from there, that's when we sort of, um, that's when we moved on to the next step of the project. Our, our uh, next goal was, or the thought that became the main thought is, um, how do we get around those two problems? How do we get to see patients who don't have access to care or who need a physical evaluation while limiting the spread of COVID, keeping our patients safe and keeping our students safe, because that's the, those that's the main priorities, keeping everyone safe while still providing care. Um, and from there, uh, me and some of my colleagues, Josh Campista, Omar Escobedo, and um, Neha Manakar, we worked with some faculty and some medical directors from certain clinics to come up with a protocol, a safety protocol and a workflow protocol of how we can overcome those exact two problems. Our three goals were to be able to see patients physically on some sort of capacity and develop a protocol that allows us to do it safely. And most importantly, have this sort of program protocol be sustainable for the future because this was back in April and we knew this was going to go on for a while. This wasn't going to be something that's going to end in two months. So one of our main goals was to make sure this is something that we can carry on that can last for a year because we don't want to provide care for two months and then be like, oops, we're sorry, we're done. Like things, <laughs> things, things ended right there. Um, so those, those were our, our main goals of the, of this, of this project essentially. From that point on, we kind of looked into the CDC criteria, the WHO criteria. We worked with Dr. Fancher a lot. That's actually when Dr. Fancher and I met was the first time through that committee, through that protocol. And um, to sort of summarize, we took about five months for us to develop everything. We decided that we were going to open one centralized clinic to see patients in person and have all the other 12 pseudomon clinics still operate on a telemedicine capacity and sort of send patients that they deem necessary to see physically 
to that centralized clinic for physical evaluation. And the idea there was basically having one centralized location would allow us us to consolidate PPE, which was a very, very big issue when we started this because PPE is so scarce and we really need to provide adequate PPE for our students, for our faculty um, to be able to see patients safely. And the second thing it allowed us to do is sort of consolidate the workforce so have everyone from all Sonoran clinics help in that centralized location. That makes sense. And uh, sort of have a better control over that one centralized location because it's really hard to implement a safety protocol in 12 locations and make sure everyone is following it compared to implementing a safety protocol in one location and making sure everyone is following it. Dr. Fancher, what has been your role in um setting this up and guiding the process? So I was their primary contact at the School of Medicine. So what we tried to figure out, what what we were trying to figure out was what are the policies at the health system? What are the policies in the clinics? How can we apply those now to the student-run clinic? And can we take advantage of some of the pathways that have existed already uh, in the health system? While the, the student-run clinics really operate quite independently actually. But um, so that's the work that I did with Mustafa. They developed, gosh, how, how big was your protocol? It's like a giant document of a protocol. Yeah. I think it was like 14 pages or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and um, so that's the piece that I helped them figure out, Patrick, was here's, here's some ideas. Let's try to put it in this cohesive way. Let's make it so that it can be replicated at other clinics. Let's ensure that before um, any new new students are invited to participate, let's ensure that there's a training program, right? So that they review the protocol, sort of all those pieces. So that while I think the students were really trying to figure out what's the best thing to do for our patients, like I have to make sure that the students are safe, right? And that, um, and that they're accounted for too. All right, cool. I guess what I'd want to go into now is uh, Mustafa, how, how do you see what you're doing with these uh, student-run clinics or SRCs, I guess we can abbreviate, um, with these SRCs, how, or give me an example of how your work has addressed one of the, or a number of these social determinants of health specifically. Yeah, so um, after we kind of came up with that protocol, we actually opened, our first day was opening for that centralized clinic was September 27th, and we've seen, we've been seeing patients since then. Um, and I continued to sort of oversee the weekly logistics just to make sure that things are running smoothly. And we're soon transitioning that operation to the incoming class as we sort of go into dedicated and they take over the student clinics. But essentially, uh, for the first few days when we opened clinics, I made sure to be on site because I wanted to really, um, me and my colleagues that I had mentioned earlier, made sure to be on site to evaluate our work and make sure that there's no issues in our workflow that we had created and all of that. And I remember seeing a few patients then. It's, I remember one time I saw a patient that had come to clinic and um, they had worked a lot with their hands and they had come to clinic complaining of hand pain. We diagnosed them with a cyst on their hand that was happening from overuse of, of their hands. And so one of our recommendations was, hey, take a little bit to rest, take some time off. And this person left and they came next week and I had been working the next weekend as well. And when they came back, they sort of approached me and they were like, 
hey, we really, uh, I really need a letter to get me off of work because my job requires me to work a lot with my hands and I really need a letter. And they, they almost sounded shy about it. And I, of course, like personally, I will give a letter. Like that was the recommendation that we had given is to get time off and you're needing time off and you're needing recommendations. Should you need time off? We'll of course give that. And so I was like, yeah, sure. Like I'll write a letter. And this person just burst down crying in front of me. And I was like, whoa. And they were crying because they were so appreciative that I was so believing of them. And I was so just immediately willing to like believe them and give them this letter. And all I'm doing is I'm writing a letter. Like I don't, it's three sentences, right? It's a heading with three sentences that says, please give this person time off. But this person is, was so appreciative that they lost their composure and they just start crying in front of me. And that sort of really like moved me. Cause I was like, wow, this person, like I'm doing something so simple, but for this person, this is such a big action because they have such a hard time getting access to care, getting physicians to believe them, getting all, all of these things and sort of getting just, I mean, yeah, like I said, something as simple as a letter to get off of work that me performing that little action so quickly made the world difference them that day. And so we had sent the patient home and I just, that honestly gave me a bigger even push to sort of like keep this clinic going because this patient would not have been able to get all that had it not been for us opening that clinic location. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a it's a simple example, but uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The, you know, I, I try to emphasize often that medicine is is not just applied biology. It's it's an art, um, and the art is long. Life is short. Ars longa, vita brevis. Uh, that's for Doctor Fancher. But you have this person who's probably economic uh, stability depends on, you know, their ability to maintain their job. And of course, in medicine, we are, are balancing often whatever the biological good is or the, you know, the board's uh, answer for this or that uh, condition with real life. And the fact that, you know, we have to be able to address things that, that will affect you know, the ability to pursue what is the textbook answer for this or that treatment. Um, and, you know, the ability to re- retain a job is certainly one of those things. So uh, hopefully the the job was accommodating because I've also been in situations where it's like, no matter what I do, these uh, uh, <laughs> these people are not going to help the patients. Um, 
with their own health. Uh, and it's, it's annoying, you know, wish you had more power as it were, but let's get a little more practical here. Let's dive into some cases. And, and these are not um, exactly board style. Uh, they come from the HSS review book uh, by, uh, published by Elsevier. Um, and I, I would say I can go ahead and read this first one, Mustafa, maybe you uh, uh, can read the next one. And then we can just kind of um, go through some of these uh, answer choices and the issues surrounding them. So with this one, we've got a 31-year-old uh, primogravid patient who immigrated from uh, Bhutan who presents to the Women's Health Clinic for first prenatal care appointments. This is her third appointment at the clinic, uh, but she had missed the first two. Uh, she's uh, an immigrant to the United States from Nepal, where she came from a refugee camp two months prior and has had no prenatal care to date. So at 30 weeks, still no prenatal care. She speaks only Nepali, but is accompanied by her husband who speaks a little bit of English and an interpreter phone is used to conduct most of the interview. Her physical examination and lab testing reveals uh, no issues regarding the pregnancy. So the first kind of question that uh, we're asked to think about here is, is what are the social determinants of health that contribute to the patient's difficulty with keeping appointments? So what are they, Mustafa? This would be the easiest pimping question you ever got. The open-ended ones. <laughs> I think it's everything you had, mentioned, you had just mentioned, the lack of insurance, the lack of financial resources, the um, lack of culturally informed care and the immigration status. And we actually, this is a classic case that we see in our student clinics, um, someone who doesn't speak English very well, someone who doesn't know much about medicine, who doesn't know about, um, who doesn't have access to insurance or healthcare resources and um, who relies on us to really um, sort of address that part of their um, care and of their life. So if this were the boards, and yes, again, the boards are going to have questions on health system science, or your school may eventually have a straight up health system science exam that you'll have to take. But if you're being asked what the social determinants of health are related to a case like this, you might have answer choices like A, lack of health insurance, B, limited financial resources, C, lack of what you mentioned, access to culturally informed care, or D, immigration experience and uh, immigration status. Uh, so the answer here, what are the social determinants are all of them. And that's why I mentioned that it's not quite a board's uh, compliant question because the NBME does not allow um, all of the above, none of the above type um, uh, question constructions, but um, something to keep in mind for, you know, reading the uh, vignettes, pulling out uh, those different aspects. Um, and the way we did that is perfect too, just as an aside, uh, you know, Mustafa, if you're preparing for step one here in a few months, um, or even now, um, you know, having an idea of what the answer is to the interrogative or question being asked prior to actually looking at the answer choices, the so-called cover the answer choices test. That's the way to go when it comes to uh, uh, not only getting the single best answer scored correctly on your exam, but also like reducing your anxiety because I mean, probably all of us have had that experience where 
you like read a question you're like i know what that is and then you get it and see the answer choice on it and you're like boom i'm moving on but if you're like struggling and thinking like oh is it a or b and you're like weighing it back and forth in that whole test you're like thinking oh man you get all this anxiety so um try that cover the answers test um, i agree <laughs> but all right so, <laughs> thank you uh back to the subject at hand so um anything more to say about that case uh dr fancher yeah you know you know i would just say as we think about the importance of the immigration experience and immigration status i just don't want that to go um, unrecognized and i think the other thing i would want to think about in this case is asking her about violence or either personal violence or witness violence or threats of violence and um, ensure her personal safety and just not make that assumption in this context. Um, yeah, intimate partner violence is, uh, you know, a big deal when it comes to pregnant women, for sure. Um, and then um, <laughs> somebody who comes from a refugee camp um, and is an immigrant, I'm, I'm sure is a, a lot of potential for violence that someone like me just doesn't really, it's never on their radar. Um, I don't know, Mustafa, if you can, or if you're able comfortable to uh speak to um uh to that at all if you want um we so this is actually a very um difficult topic to address um and in this in the context of sooner run clinics um mostly because um talking to someone about something so intimate so emotionally provoc provoking is really hard for a physician, and it is especially hard for our medical students who are still training to be physicians. Um, and I have been a witness of some uh, multiple, actually, cases um, that came to our center and clinics in which uh, a patient didn't tell us offhand, and then the medical student had picked it up from basic questioning and didn't know what to do. And then most of the time at that point, we notify the preceptor. And luckily, we have amazing preceptors in student-run clinics who are very well diversified and know how to handle these situations. And then at that point, the preceptor goes in with a medical student, cares for the patient, and the medical student learns on how to handle these really sensitive topics, which I think is a very big advantage in our student-run clinics. Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, just learning how to communicate surrounding these things is is you know it's going to do worlds of good for your education and and the patients you'll um, be responsible for in the future for sure. Like that is definitely an art that needs to be taught a lot more. Um, is addressing things of that nature, addressing them well. There's also one of the clinics has a medical legal partnership, which brings in oh, wow. legal aid um, on site so that you can get assistance for your patients right there and, and they'll help them even after the visit too. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's, <laughs> I was also at another patient encounter yesterday where I was like, man, I wish we had some like legal aid. Um, but one thing at a time. Uh, all right. So let's, let's go on to the second part of, um, of, of this case here. So, um, so Mustafa, I'll read it for you. How's that? That sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so RL is a 30-year-old woman. She's primarily Spanish-speaking and has a history of gestational diabetes. She presents to the weekend clinic for um, headaches. Her personal pronouns are she, her, and hers. She has a headache that is on both sides of her head, occurs most days, and improves with rest. She has no photophobia or change in vision. Her blood pressure is normal. 
She's married and has three young children. Her husband works in construction. The family eats fast food three nights a week because the kids are embarrassed to eat their free lunches at school. So when they get home, they're awfully hungry. Um, and there's lots of fast food options at home. She also volunteers that she moved here um, uh, when she got married, moved here from outside the country. So the question for you, Mustafa, is which of the following interventions are likely to help her? So A, prescribing her something for migraine headaches, B, referring her to a neurologist, C, asking her about food insecurity, D, all of the above, or E, none of the above. Um, I would say I would ask her about her food insecurity because the fact that her uh, children are volunteering or um, qualifying for free lunch in school, that gives me um, an idea that likely they are they have a struggle with um, food insecurity and um, food insecurity is one of the biggest social determinants of health and sort of, and has a huge impact on your current health and your future health. Um, and so addressing that would be, pro, it would be um, intervention and prevention in my, in my eyes that would help intervene with any current problems that are going on that could be addressing, causing her headaches and prevent any future problems that could happen from poor diet. Yeah, I, this is this is really great because I think this could go totally differently and probably does most of the time in real life. If you have a patient like this, okay, um, I, I'm OB, by the way, um, comes in, it's like, okay, she's got headaches, so uh, what pill can I give her? Um, or does she have features for which I need to refer her to a neurologist? And if those are the only two things that you're thinking about, then you've missed a lot because, I mean, with gestational diabetes um, and this potential issue related to her nutritional status, she might be having headaches because she's not eating enough, eating the wrong things, uh, et cetera. Uh, thoughts on that, either of you? Um, yes, I, I, I totally agree. And uh, we actually have. Um, a lot of our patients like that. And luckily, we use a lot of local and national resources to help with that. Um, and we have in a lot, of, a lot of our clinics what we call education departments. And they are um, small departments run within our clinics in which um, undergraduates and medical students collaborate to teach patients that come to our clinics about diet, about exercise, about long-term care, and um, more importantly, give them access and knowledge some of those resources that they could use that they have at their disposal to address issues like food insecurity mental health issues and stuff like that yeah perfect uh and then dr fancher you said you wanted to do um two questions um because we could end it here um or mustafa you could stick around or uh, we could just keep going um, i have until 1 p.m so um, nothing scheduled. I finished finals. I am good <laughs> with uh, school for, for at least a week. <laughs> awesome. Good for you. Well, uh, then I would say then let's uh, keep going. We can cover the rest of these that are here. Um, just kind of uh, quick and dirty, as they say, because this will be more like pearls you should remember regarding the social determinants of healthcare. Again, thanks to Elsevier um, for providing this content. Uh, so these are straight up questions. Um, with the, the next one, it's known and well-documented health disparities in America include which of the following? A, life, life expectancy disparity among races, infant mortality disparity among, 
amongst races. Diabetes prevalence by gender, race, education, socioeconomic class, uh, food deserts preventing access, food deserts, excuse me, that I've always thought one extra S can lead to a bunch of different problems with the word dessert and desert at any rate. Food, <laughs> uh, deserts preventing access to healthy food for the poor or all of the above. So this one's all of the above. Um, just to highlight here that, you know, life expectancy, infant mortality, diabetes prevalence, these are um, all well-documented health disparities um, uh, amongst races and diabetes also with respect to gender education, socioeconomic class, um, and then the lack of healthy food accessibility for the poor among us. Um, so next, though, is more of a appropriate case. And just to say, I think something that's um, really exciting and just emerging in the data in the past couple of years is that looking at um, racial concordance for physicians and patients, we're seeing that patients Yes, I, I think patients are happier, but we're seeing that patients actually live longer and get um, better treatment. So there was a study that had come out of Oakland that was um, black physicians, black male physicians taking care of black male patients and that they got better care and um, were um, more engaged in their care. And that we just learned this year that when um, black infants are cared for by black physicians, they also do better. Interesting. So for me, it's an important part of the solution to this problem, right? From a workforce side that really yeah. we need to do a better job at recruiting students like Mustafa, right? To care for communities. Yeah. Um, I guess those of us who serve the communities should, you know, uh, be uh, reflective of the communities which we're serving. Um, that seems kind of intuitive, but um, I, I think we have not done that great of a job uh, in medicine, mm -hmm. uh, although probably getting better with uh, people like yourself, um, assuming roles that will um, help encourage that diversity. And uh, that's really surprising, though, too. Um, it, I don't know. To discuss that a little more, um, what, what do you think that says about the or what is the likely reason for that? You have black physicians taking care of um, African-American babies doing better. Um, why? It's such, uh, yeah, it, I, I don't think we know, right? Because it's not access. That's kind of a leading question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not access. It's not education. It's not sort of the traditional, it's not socioeconomics, right? The pieces that we have historically um, thought about. But it, there's, it, I, I would guess that there's something that happens on both sides that is something that's unmeasurable right now, right? About um, um, having to develop this intense trust in a stranger very quickly and and I would think at a molecular level, honestly, there's probably something that happens, right? So when you're not, um, when you're stressed or not trusting, these 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 changes happen, and hopefully those are happening less when you're having less of that stress in that initial encounter. So that's what I hope is happening, and I think that um, 
you know, we need lots of doctors and lots and all kinds of different doctors. And I think that we benefit from each other. Um, I just am so proud of the renewed insistence and attention on the importance um, of workforce diversity to really try to fix some of these longstanding uh, problems. So you're saying these findings uh, are a result of a certain uh, uh, je ne sais quoi about um, uh, uh, the concordance of uh, race and, and probably other um, uh, uh, less uh, measurable factors uh, in, in terms of meeting out delivering care. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at the Oakland study that, you know, those doctors spent a lot more time with the patients, they knew the patient's social history better, right? <laughs> so the patients, they would spend more time talking about their outside of, of the office celebrations, right? Family milestones, family challenges, things like that. So that the relationship is so different. So we as physicians, like, you know, you even say, we often think about what's the med that's needed or what's the referral that's needed, right? But the, the art of this job is much more complicated than that. You should be asking what's the relationship that's needed, probably. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's uh, do another one here. Case number four, you want to read this one, Mustafa? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, case number four. Uh, Bridget is a second-year medical student who's doing an away rotation at the uh, C- Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. Um, during her rotation, she is asked to develop an initiative uh, focused on one of the five key areas identified by Healthy People 2020. She decides to focus her proposal on developing an after-school program for elementary-age children, which aims to reduce gang-related violence. Which of the five key areas of Healthy People 2020 is the main focus of Bridget's project? A, economic stability. B, education. C, social and community context. D, health and healthcare. And E, neighborhood and built environment. And these are really kind of that, uh, uh, kind of the five main um, social determinants identified um, as, as part of this framework in health system science. Um, and so for this one, um, it's uh, neighborhood and built environment. I know that because I have the answer. Um, <laughs> but let's explore that a little more. What, why neighborhood and built environment? What does that even really mean practically? Maybe that's uh, a question for Dr. Fancher to put her on the spot here. <laughs> sure. Well, I, I think, um, you know, a big piece of this question to me is related to safety, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and safety in the neighborhood, be it um, lighting, things like that, right? Sort of safety. But I also think about the things related to ACEs. So for early childhood exposure and um, really exposure to gang violence is one piece of that. And so um, sort of thinking beyond, sorry, Patrick, going off on a tangent on your question, but no, that's okay. Just to, to apply it to sort of this real life context, right? That we know that um, that these exposures to children have lasting impacts on their health for years and years and years to come. So the more that we can do at that level, I think uh, is pretty critical. It leads to lots of other questions in my mind about um, what's the history that led to that in that environment, right? That sort of led led to set up the neighborhood to be a place that is um, 
um, subject to gang violence. I think that's not necessarily true of all places. So it just brings back that issue of um, redlining or sort of structural determinants in addition to the social determinants. Yeah, um, you said lighting and um, in a literal sense, I, I thought uh, mm-hmm. actually that lighting could actually be part of the, the neighborhood and built environment, of course. That that makes tons of sense if, you know, the, the streets are dark and, um, you know, like nefarious things can happen under the cover of uh, darkness a lot easier. Throw up some um, street lights, perhaps that reduces the incidence of uh, violence or uh, theft, mm-hmm. uh, things that can put somebody, uh, injure them economically. I don't, is that true? Do you do you know or <laughs> do I know the data? I don't know the data. It certainly makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, just offhand. I don't know. If- no, I don't know the data offhand. It certainly makes sense to me. But I think we also have to think about poverty and yeah. um, employment, right? Oh yeah, totally. housing that's fair fair priced for the neighborhood, things like that. Yeah, and actually, uh, sorry. Just, just to come, just to comment on that a little bit. Um, Dr. Fincher had mentioned ACEs, and I think that's getting a lot more recognition, which I think is really important. Um, addressing and you're talking about adverse childhood events. Yes, adverse okay. childhood experiences. Yes, because um, that's getting a lot more recognition in the sense that addressing that early on could really help prevent a lot of the chronic diseases that we're seeing now, that are some of the world-leading causes of death and mortality. Um, and uh, I think that's getting a lot more attention. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's, I, I don't think from like health system perspective that is getting a lot covered yet because um, like in California here, children are covered by um, Medi-Cal um, for insurance for healthcare. But for example, that doesn't cover addressing ACEs, which is clearly, as I was, as I was mentioning, um, is getting a lot of uh, attention now and how that could save cost in the future um, if you sort of address that early on. And part of our initiative to sort of address that is we have some students from the school, some undergrads from the UC Davis campus and some faculty are working currently together to put on that 13th student-run clinic that I had mentioned, which will actually be catered for the pediatric population. And we will work with states resources and um, providers around the area to not only address medical care for pediatric populations that lack access to it, but to also address a lot of these ACEs in a free manner for these vulnerable populations. So we'll, so um, these students in that clinic will be targeting zip codes that are well-known through multiple studies to be financially challenged, to have a lot of crime and violence, and um, they will physically go by a mobile clinic to those neighborhoods and try to address medical care and ACEs and follow up with these um, children and adolescents into the future, which will hopefully improve their healthcare outcomes. Perfect. I I think we can close here, but I just want to close with the kind of last question we had looked at. And, and that was what percent of determinants of population health is attributable to medical care? And just to drive home this point, um, the answer to this is 10%. So when you break down the determinants of population health into, you know, a pie chart of behavior, the genetics, the social circumstances, the environment, environmental exposures, uh, and and healthcare in general, uh, the portion that can be attributed to medical care, probably what we do when we close the door uh, to an exam room, 
that's 10%. So I think a lot of us have, have seen that with COVID and its widespread effects on uh, some of these other things, especially the social circumstances and uh, environmental uh, things. But uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. Um, you're welcome to come back anytime, either of you. And, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. It sounds like you got a good thing going, um, both in terms of educating the students uh, at those SRCs uh, and taking care, more importantly, of the patients that you serve. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you, Dr. Beeman. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.